You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our verse this morning is Romans 7, verse 7. What, the law sh- what then shall we say? That the law is sin, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would, have, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what is to covet, if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised me life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That is the word of the Lord. Well, if I were to ask you, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? What would your answer be? I think the answer that people tend to give to that question goes something like this. It's to love God and love others. And while this statement is true and it is compelling, we are to love God and we are to love others. In fact, Jesus would say it's upon these two commands, the entire Bible hinges. But we need to notice something important. And it's this, love God and love others are commands. Love God and love others is not the gospel of God. It is actually a very concise summary of his law. The gospel is the good news that God loves us. The gospel is the good news of how he has come to rescue us from sin, Satan, and death, and to bring us into a renewed life within his everlasting kingdom that he has sent his son Jesus Christ to live, die, and rise again on the third day, and he's given us his Holy Spirit so that we can live transformed lives that bless the people around us. The gospel isn't about how much we love God and others. The gospel is that God first loved us. The law and the gospel. The law informs. The gospel transforms. The law tells us how we should and shouldn't live. The gospel, there it goes, makes us into the kind of people that God has called us to be. Now, this all goes to say that Christians have always struggled with their relationship between the law and the gospel, and really to understand how to interact with God's instructions now that we have believed and been saved through the gospel. Does the gospel mean that the law is now unimportant? Is it irrelevant now? Does it mean, as some tell us, that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament? Wait, is the law good? Is it bad? Do we still have to obey it? Do we not have to obey it now? Calm down, calm down, calm down. I know you stay up every night thinking about these questions. I'm here to relieve you of that. 
Well, you're not the first to wrestle with that, and you won't be the last. This goes all the way back to the first century churches that we read about in the New Testament, churches like the church in Rome, the first recipients of this letter that we're spending this year walking through. And with all that Paul has said about the law of God previously in the book of Romans, that it is incapable of saving us, that is incapable of making us anything, that we are not saved by our ability to obey it, but we're saved simply through faith in Jesus Christ, he then now anticipates an objection from the religious community. Big surprise. Well, wait a minute. Just a second here, Paul. Okay, what then shall we say, they ask? That the law is sin? All right, Paul, if I'm tracking with you here, if I'm paying attention, are you saying that the law itself is bad? And Paul's short answer is what? No. That's it in a nutshell. So if you're here this morning, you're like, Christian, just put it really simply for me. Here it is. The law isn't bad or broken. You are. The problem isn't with what God has commanded. The problem is with us. Whenever there is gridlock between what God has said and between what God has said and what we want to do, the assumption of the believer is always the problem is with me. If it doesn't seem to reconcile, then it's not God that has failed, but it's me that's failed to understand what's going on here. It's me that's failed to understand God's vision for our flourishing. So Paul gives the short answer, which again is, no, the the law is not bad, it's not sin. But then, and you knew it it couldn't be that easy this morning, where we would just close the sermon now. He gives the short answer, and then he gives the more robust answer, which we're gonna do today. And we're gonna look at three things specifically from the passage, if you're taking notes, the three things are these. The law reveals, the law provokes, and the law guides. The law reveals, the law provokes, the law guides. Let's look first at the law reveals. Look with me again in verse seven. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So, in my opinion, one of the worst things about staying in a hotel is the lighting and the mirror in the bathrooms. There's something about that lighting and mirror combination that highlights everything, especially all the things on your face that you don't want highlighted, spots and wrinkles and hair growing out of places you never would have imagined hair grows out of, and on and on and on. Ladies too, you're not exempt from this. It brings to light the things that are otherwise unnoticed or concealed. Now, I can do a number of things at that moment. I can punch the mirror because I'm angry at what I see. Or I can call the front desk and be like, I need to be moved to a different room because clearly there's something wrong with this mirror. I can blame the hotel, I can blame the building contractor, I can blame the manufacturer of the mirror, or I can do what a lot of people do, they just turn off the light and pretend they didn't see what they just saw. Uh, uh -uh. Not today, devil. The Bible describes the law of God, listen, as a mirror that we must all face. The Bible describes the law of God as a mirror that we have to come face to face with. 
Now, it can't change us. It, it, it can't take away those blemishes. It can't make us look better. There are no Instagram filters that soften the lines and add little sparkles to our face when we stare into this mirror. But at the same time, it doesn't distort us. There's nothing in this mirror that makes us look any worse than we are. There is nothing exaggerated about its assessment of us. Like that hotel lighting and mirror, the law simply reveals. Its job is to be truthful and honest in its reflection. And what it reveals is really two things. Who God is, his holiness, and who we are. The us that just doesn't add up on our own. Paul goes on to say in verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So how is this law that previously Paul seems to have a very negative view of, or at least that's the way it sounds. You're, you seem to be harping on this law that it's like bad, but how are you saying that it's holy, righteous, and good? And the answer is because it's a window into the holy and righteous and good character of God. The law reveals to us who God is. And it's the standard metric by which we now measure life and love. You think you're good? Well, that's great but are you God good? You think you made the mark, but did you make the holy, glorious mark? It's only when we recognize how holy God is that we then recognize how needy and desperate we are for his grace. Those who are full of themselves, those who are, you know, have an inflated view of themselves, the prideful, the self-congratulatory, and on and on and on. The issue isn't just how they see themselves. The primary issue is how they see God. And the true remedy of arrogance is not just to think worse of ourselves. All right, buddy, you need to bring yourself down a rung or two. No, the true remedy of arrogance is to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the holiness of God because... If we saw God for who he truly is, we could never imagine ever again being full of ourselves. The issue isn't how you're seeing you. The issue is whether or not you're seeing God. Something my wife has been trying to teach me over the years that I can sadly only say that I'm beginning to scratch the surface on at this point in my life is this, that when you take God and his word serious, you'll stop taking yourself so serious. Find me a Christian that still has a persona and is taking themselves so serious, and you found a Christian that's probably not taking the word of God very serious. Because when we see God for his holiness, we are melted, and we're undone. The veneer is dropped. The this is who I am goes away when we stand in the all-consuming presence of a holy God. Now, in the Old Testament, are you guys still with me? Do, do we need to, I, I see some, some of this going on. Do I need to be turned up? Okay, no, thank you for the honest answer. Just an overinflated view of myself here. Okay. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, in chapter 6, 
We're told that the prophet Isaiah gets this amazing vision of God seated on his throne, enraptured in glory, and the, the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. Now it's interesting that as you read through the book of Isaiah, as a prophet, what we see is his job was to call out injustice and wrongdoing in the people around him. This was Isaiah's job. Woe to you, and woe to you, and woe to you in the back, and woe to you in the nursing mom's room, and woe to you, and woe to you who call evil good, and woe to you, and woe to you. Eight times in the first five chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah is saying, woe to you. But then something occurs when he sees God in his holiness. In chapter 6, we read this, and I said, woe is me, for I'm lost. And I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's no longer an Isaiah whose focus is on the sins and failures of other people, which, by the way, seems like the very popular thing to do in the 21st century. It's no longer an Isaiah consumed by the wrongdoings of other people. This is now an Isaiah who's been confronted with the reality of his own sinful condition and his own need for forgiveness, who realizes that he alone does not add up, that he misses the mark, that he falls short of the glory of God, who is now willing to be identified with the rest of humanity, and I would argue is therefore more equipped to speak truthfully to other people. What's happened? He says, my eyes have seen. My eyes have seen. I, I've seen something now. I can't unsee it. I, I've seen something that's changed my life and I, I can't go back. And so the question is for us, well then how do we see the holiness of God? How, how do we get such a humbling glimpse and vision of God's holiness? Well, Paul's told us. The law reveals that holiness. The law shows it. The law reveals God's character. The law reveals God's will. The law reveals what a holy life is. The law reveals how we fall short, which then, and here's the point, which then drives us to God to find grace and forgiveness and healing through repentance and faith. For the Christian, the like, I've got this attitude is gone. If you face Christianity with the, I got this attitude, you haven't faced the mirror. You haven't come face to face with this mirror. And it's only after Isaiah then confesses, woe is me, that we're told later on in Isaiah 6 that one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that was taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips, that, that uncleanness of your life, and your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. The law drives us today to say, no longer woe to you, but woe is me. And in that confession of woe is me, then God greets us with grace, mercy, cleansing, and healing. Can I get an amen? The law reveals. Secondly, 
the law provokes. Look at me in verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity, I love the way that it's personified here, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So, now Paul highlights one of the Ten Commandments. That if you're curious where to find those Ten Commandments, it's in Exodus 20. And he highlights one of the Ten Commandments to illustrate the point that he's making. And the, one of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not covet. Now that word covet means an over-desire. It's to look upon something or someone with envy and obsession. I think about that old Whitney Houston song, I have nothing, nothing, nothing if I don't have you. Covetousness manifests itself in our lives in that way. I don't have anything in my life. Everything is lost if I don't have this one thing. Kids, this expresses itself in your life. Adults, this expresses itself in our lives too. We've just learned to manage our temper tantrums a little bit better. Some of us. I don't have anything if I don't have this. Now, what he's not saying, what he's not saying here, and it kind of sounds like he is saying this, but what he's not saying is that before he knew the Ten Commandments, he never coveted. He's like, then when I read the Ten Commandments, then I became a covetous person. It just, boom, it like started in my life. That's not what he's saying. What he's doing is he's reflecting upon the past and saying that when the law came home to him, when it finally clicked, it put objective language to his very subjective experience. That's what the Bible does. It makes sense of your life better than you can make sense of your life. It brings the kind of clarity that we can only imagine bringing to our own experience. But then Paul goes even further here to show us not only does the law reveal, but it provoked things within me. As we looked at last week, it tells us that the law aroused sinful passions. The word in the Greek is to be energized or awakened. Imagine a, a sleeping bear that's been hibernating and the law goes tiptoeing by and click steps on a stick and the bear awakens hungry and ferocious. The law awakened sinful passions. And so the idea here is that prohibition stimulates desire. Let me say it differently. When we're told not to do something, we want to do it all the more. Right? You tell a kid, I don't want you touching that thing. What are they going to do? They're going to wait till you're gone and they're going to go touch that thing. Or we as adults, we walk by a wall that says wet paint, don't touch. What do we do? Let's test that theory. Think about this on a national level. The 18th Amendment, prohibition, arguably one of the greatest legislative flops in American history. Someone determined that if we take away alcohol, it's going to take away the issue of alcohol and it, how it destroys life. Guess what? It increased alcohol consumption and then added on top of it an increase in other substance abuse. The idea was if we take it away, we say no more doing this is going to solve the problem. What does it do? It stimulates. It stimulates. St. Augustine, he tells the story of 
when he was a teenager, he was a part of this group of teens that called them, I love this, I love this. They called themselves the Destructors. The Destructors. I want to be with Augustine. Destructors. Boom. And the Destructors were out doing, you know, destructive 4th, 5th century stuff. And at the end of the day, they're walking home and they notice this pear tree. But the thing about this pear tree is that it was on someone else's property. And despite the fact that these boys were not particularly interested in pears themselves, they went towards this tree anyways. And St. Augustine, in his famous confessions, writes this. We carried off huge loads of pears, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the hogs after barely tasting some of them ourselves. Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. What made this so appealing? The fact that we weren't supposed to do it. And he goes on to say this, it was foul and I loved it. And I loved my own, un, my own undoing. I loved my error, not you know, for which I erred, but the error itself. A depraved soul falling away from the security in thee to destruction in itself, seeking nothing from the shameful deed, but shame itself. Ever since Adam and Eve, people have been grasping for forbidden fruit. And what's provoked within us isn't necessarily the thing itself, fill in the blank. What's provoked within us is the desire to seek control, that you can't tell me what to do attitude. No. I'm in control of my life. This is my ship to steer, right? This is my deal. Who are you to tell me what's best for my life? What was most enticing for Adam and Eve? What was most enticing for Augustine and his little destructor friends? What's most, here, let's make it personal. What's most enticing for us? It's never the fruit itself. It's never the thing or the person or the dream that we're chasing. It's the lie that the serpent whispered, you'll be like God. Forget all the rest of the stuff that God's been doing. He's holding out on you. Because when he, he knows that when you eat of this tree, you'll see like he sees. And you'll live like him. It's this deception at work in all of us as well. And so that's why the law provokes. What it does, what the law does, is it forces that power struggle that all of us have. It forces that power struggle to the surface where we have to face it, where, where we're confronted with it. it. It awakens the desires for autonomy. I'm in control that was always there. And that's why even so-called atheists are so easily provoked. I've got this guy that lives in my neighborhood, self-professed atheist. And yet he is very, very easily provoked by the things of God and his word. Political things, ah, he'll jump in. Issues about so-and-so not mowing their lawn, all right, he's in. You talk about God, 
Oh, we struck a chord, didn't we? We struck a chord. Why? Because whether you believe in God or not, his word provokes that inner struggle that is inherent with human existence. Whether you're young, old, believer, not believer. So the law provokes. Now let's look finally at the law guides. The law guides. Look at me in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me, though it is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So here's the question. How can something that provokes so much turmoil within still be good? And how can something that reveals to me so much ugliness within my own life still itself be beautiful? I'm going to answer this question, and I'm not going to build tension, and I'm not going to be creative in my answer. I'm just going to tell you and explain it. It all hinges on a changed heart. All of this hinges on a changed heart. No one is able to look at what God instructs and say, that's good. I want that. Unless, unless they've received a changed heart through faith in Jesus Christ. In the book of Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, God speaks of this restoring work that he's going to do on behalf of his people through his Messiah. And it says in Ezekiel 36, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. Now, we've got to hold off for just a few more weeks because we're going to talk about that in chapter 8. Paul's all about that stuff. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you, make you, form you in a way where you walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So this new heart doesn't just obey. It desires to obey. This new heart doesn't just do what God says. This new heart forms within us a thoughtful, intentional desire to honor God in everything that we say, in everything that we do. The heart of stone resists. The heart of stone is provoked. The heart of stone is suspicious of God. The heart of stone says, yeah, I know God said that, but he doesn't know and he doesn't understand my situation. The heart of stone says, that doesn't make sense, so it must not apply to me. The new heart. The new heart that is ours when we trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, that new heart joins with the psalmist in saying something very strange. He says in Psalm 119, your law is my delight. Something that used to provoke so much anger and rebellion in me stirs desire and affection. That new heart 
is awakened. That new heart is energized. That new heart, to use Paul's language, is aroused, but not to resist God's instructions, but to obey them. Energized by the righteousness of God. And so, Elise Fitzpatrick, she sort of sums this all up by saying this. It's the good news of what has already been accomplished for us by Christ that creates within the heart of the believer the love that is necessary for obedience. It's the good news, the gospel itself, that empowers us to change. It liberates us. It transforms our affections. It makes us love God and enables us to say no to every other lover because the love he's given is so sweet, so glorious, so all-encompassing. And she goes on to say this, obedience must be fueled by love for God and in faith that he sees and welcomes us because of the work accomplished for us by the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession of our Savior. What does this now mean for us then? What does this mean for us as believers in the 21st century relating to God's law, his commands? And it's this. What used to be a crushing weight becomes now for us an important guide for the Christian life. What it does is it takes this very vague concept of love, whatever the heck that means, and gives it concrete form. It defines what it means to love God and others. It shows us how we can please God as his children. It shows us what it means to love the world around us. It shows us how we can actually experience the freedom that Jesus has purchased for us at the cross. Now, I want to conclude with sharing some data that I read recently from Barna. They did some research, and what they found was that 74% of millennials not taking into account faith, but just millennials in general, 74% of them generally agreed with this statement. Whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth that you can know. That's not surprising to me. In fact, if anything, I'm surprised by, it, by, by that low of a number. I would anticipate like 95% of millennials would say that. That's all we ever hear. Live your truth. Don't let anyone impose any idea or fundamentalist ideas on you. You live what's true inside you. Sound familiar? Okay, this is what I see everywhere. This doesn't surprise me, but what was surprising and what was shocking was this. They asked that same question to believers. And not just millennials. Don't get comfortable, boomers. Not just millennials. Gen Xers. <laughs> the now grays. 41%, 41% of professing Christians agreed with this statement. Whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth you can know. So what that means is if I took a line and divided it almost down the middle and I said, you believe that God's word dictates and directs your life and you, you're just making it up as you go. You live your truth. So here's my charge to us in light of God's word, in light of the law and the gospel. It's this reality. Let's seek to change this trend. You know what? I believe that that line does not divide our church today. I just believe greater things for reality. 
But let's seek as a community to actually change that trend, to be those who've been set free to live for God and to obey his instructions, those who trust that his truth is better than our own version of the truth. Those who live not according to our own preferences, but according to God's word, as those who live set-apart lives for God's glory and, and exemplify his transforming kingdom to a world that is desperate for direction and desperate for guidance. Those who look to God's law not to save us, but to guide us in our new humanity through Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your...